We're continuing our series through the letters of John. The letters of John the Apostle. He wrote three of them. He wrote, well, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation and then the Gospel of John. And we're going through these, those three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And, and it's very obvious if you read this book, it's very obvious for anybody who's been with us through the series that there's a very overarching theme in, woven into this letter, this first letter of John. And that overarching theme is very obviously love. It's love. But kind of interwoven throughout this overarching theme of love uh, there is kind of these subpoints that really uh, are pivotal to our walk with God. So John, for instance, he tells us how to spot antichrists and how to know the difference between sound doctrine and bad doctrine, and you know, good teaching and bad teaching. John shows us the power of the tongue and how with our, with our words, we actually create worlds for other people and we create worlds for ourselves that we have to kind of walk in. He, he shows us that. John shows us what it means to know God, which we, we had to spend a couple different weeks on that and what it means to know God, and John kind of lays that out for us. He shows us what do we do when we feel guilty? What do we do with our guilt? John shows us the answer to that. He shows us, you know, who do we lean on when we sin? That's all kind of loaded in this epistle. This very short book that's just all and then interwoven between the whole thing is love. And then today he actually gives us another, another issue that he addresses, and that's the issue of fear. Fear. But like with everything that John does, he shows us how love is the only thing that can overcome fear. Because love is very, very powerful. But, but one thing we need to make very careful note of about fear and the way that John talks about fear and the reason that I think that we should be careful with this is because he, he, John shows us how fear is the one thing that can derail your love. So I, the way that I see it is if John's going to write an entire letter and the entire thing, he's going to dedicate all of these just absolutely beautiful words all to the subject of love. The way I see it is if he's going to get to this point when he shows, hey, this is something that can derail that, that sounds to me like a really good time to pay attention to what he's saying and try to figure out what is he saying. Uh, so let's look at this together. Let's look at 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 17 through uh, 21. So we're going to go to the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 4 today. After today, we're going to be done with chapter 4. We're going to be on chapter 5, which is exciting. It says this. It says, By this is love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anybody says, if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, that person is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, or, or, for, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, Father God, for just the beautiful, 
hot, lovely uh, 4th of July week for us, Father God. Lord, we just pray for everybody who's on vacation and on trips and is gone, Father God. We just pray a hedge of protection around them as they are with their families, Lord, that you would anoint that time for them, Father God. And right now in this room together, Lord, as we're all here and we're gathered, uh, Lord, we pray that you would be made evident and you would be manifest in this place, Lord, that we would grow in community together with one another, that we would grow in the word of God together today, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, Lord, as we once again navigate more very difficult passages and trying to figure out what it means to us today, Lord, I just pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd be here, Lord, that everything that you would have me to say that I would say and let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Don and I have been doing a lot of car shopping this week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'll talk about it a little bit later in the message, but I was in a car accident a couple months ago. Uh, we totaled our vehicle, uh, and so now we're looking for a new vehicle. And now that the insurance money and all that has gone through, we're actually like seriously on the hunt. So we were at this particular car lot in Dearborn, and it will not be named to protect the guilty, but... but we had a very kind of strange encounter there. So there's a car that we wanted to see. And we said, hey, can we look at this car? Now typically, usually, when you ask a, a car dealer to show you a car, this is what he says. He says, no problem. Let me go get the keys. Then he disappears. He goes. He gets the keys. He comes back. You drive the car. But this particular car dealer, at this particular car dealership that, again, I will not name, he said this to us. He says, you want, we said, can we see this car? He said, no problem. Let me go get the jumper cables. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead, dead serious. He, he then proceeded to go to the back. He was gone for like 15 minutes while we're sitting there looking at, like kind of looking at the, like the, uh, the seats of the car and seeing if everything works. He comes back with this charging box thing that has jumper cables that come out of it. He popped the hood, he hooked it up, and he sat for like five to ten more minutes just while it charged, and then he turned the car on. <laughs> How many of you guys know that we did not have confidence in that car? We didn't have any confidence in that car. I didn't even need to drive it. In fact, I didn't have any confidence in that car dealer or in that car dealership. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. We left. We were out of there as quickly as, as we could. Confidence is a very important thing. When you're moving forward with anything in your life, whether it be, hey, I'm buying a new car or I'm, or I'm buying a, a new used car because we're buying a used car, or maybe it's you're going on a mission trip. Or, uh, you're, or you're trying to figure out what school you're going to go to or what job you're going to work, whatever it may be, we all want to know, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing? But I want you to look very closely at what John says in this passage. At the very beginning of this, he says, he says this. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, as you know, we're going to kind of talk about fear today, but when we've talked about this passage before, we've talked about the subject of fear before, but, but today we're really going to dive into this, the, really frame the way that John is trying to do this. John is talking about us being fearful about the day of judgment, about that coming day when we meet the Lord, and John wants us to be sure that we're confident for that day. And, and I want you to really read this closely. I want you to really look at the way that this is worded. 
And, and because John, and I think I've gotten this wrong before, and I've just kind of misread this, or I've just kind of brushed over the way that it's put, but John is not saying that when that day comes and you stand before God, that he wants you to have confidence in that moment. Like, okay, you're going to be confident. You're going to be confident because if you're a Christian, if you have Jesus living in your heart, because when you're standing before God in that day, Jesus is going to be standing right there next to you. Okay, so you, so you don't need to worry about having that confidence. In that moment, you will have confidence. But John is not talking about that moment. John is talking about right now. He's talking about right now. He wants you to have confidence right now that you don't have to worry about what's going to happen then. He wants you to live your life now, not worried about then. He doesn't want you to feel like Don and I felt when we were at this car dealership, thinking, okay, if this car needs to be jumped on the lot, then of course when I go outside and it's parked outside my house and I turn it on, it's not going to start. We live in Detroit, so I have the chances of it even having all the parts the next morning or small anyway, whether or not it's going to start. So it, it, I'm kidding. No, that, we've never had any trouble like that in our neighborhood. We did have the one in Corktown had some issues. But no, um, but you, you know if it's not going to start in the lot, it's probably not going to start outside of your house. I want to have confidence to know every time I turn that car on, it's going to actually turn on. And that's what John wants to make sure that we have. He wants to make sure that we, in regards to the day of judgment, the day that we're going to give account before God, it's very important to John that right now we don't spend our entire lives worrying about what will happen that day. That's very important to him. Now, even though this is so important, it's actually very counterintuitive to the, way that, to the way that most Christians live their lives because most people get saved and then right away they become like a case, like a, like, they're like a worry wart. They're like, oh my gosh, what if I fail? What if I mess up? What happens, right? You think, so we spend our lives sometimes because we don't understand the gospel thinking, am I okay? I hope I'm okay. What if I'm not okay? Uh, and maybe I'm okay right now, but what happens if I like slip on a banana peel and I fly through the air and in the time that I fly through the air to the time I hit the ground, I say a hundred curse words. Like, do I have to start all over with God after that happens? Well, you know, so you could be okay today and then you're not okay tomorrow. Because I really don't want to miss out on heaven and that banana peel got in my way and I'm not, I'm not losing my salvation over a banana peel. But like, that's the way that we sort of live our lives. But when we do that and and I've done that a lot in my life, especially when I was younger. But at the heart of that really is a very incredibly destructive spirit. And that's the spirit of fear. And I'm going to just say this to you now as Christians because we're people of the kingdom of God. We're here for a purpose and our job is to usher in the kingdom of heaven here and now. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. But there is nothing in the entire world that will cause you to not be who you are destined to be faster than fear. There's, not, there's nothing else. And I want to clear this up right now just so there's not any confusion about this word. When I say fear... I'm talking about the spirit of fear, like what Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, when he says, God has not given you the spirit of fear. I'm talking about fear the way that John writes about it here. But before you understand that, you do need to understand that fear, there's really only one Greek word for fear, uh, and in, in the Bible it can be a good thing, and it can be a bad thing. It's the Greek word phobos, and it can mean reverence for one's husband. In some instances, this is what it means, reverence for one's husband. Now, this is how you apply it when we talk about having the fear of God in our lives, right? We, we reverence God. Or this is how we apply it when we say that we will work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. Like, if you try to work out your own salvation without reverence, 
then you're in big trouble. See, the way that we view it is like this, right? The church is the bride of Christ, okay? So the bride of Christ, if, if, if we're the bride, that means he's the groom, which means he's husband. So we make decisions asking this question, uh, what would Jesus have me to do in this? So, so if you're trying to work out your own salvation and you forget the fear part, you forget that part of like, I do this out of reverence to my husband, out of reverence to Christ, out of reverence to Jesus, uh, then you're going to very quickly find yourself in a very lost place, and you might not even realize it. And then you start to stray, and somebody tries to pull you back, and you'll say, well, I'm just working out my own salvation. We'll say, yeah, you're working out your own salvation out of whatever you want to be doing, but that's not, what, that's not what Philippians 2 says. It says you work out your own salvation out of fear and trembling. Okay? Phobos can be a very good, very important thing. But fear, phobos, in some instances will actually mean exactly what you think and what I think when we think of fear. It can mean dread or terror. And this is how John uses it here. And this is the, the definition that we would apply to when we say you've not been given the spirit of fear, the spirit of terror. See, it, it's one thing to have reverence for Jesus and to live your life sort of out of that reverence. Um, and it's a different thing entirely to just be terrified of God to be just afraid of him, like to be afraid of God, to be always worried of what God is going to do to you. And um, I really want you to grasp this thought because it's really huge and it's, it's, it'll change your life. You, if, you, you're going to get fear wrong if you don't understand the gospel. Okay, in, in Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount and this is what he says. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Now, that one sentence really is a really great summary of the gospel. See, being poor in spirit means that you realize that my spirit is poor. There's, there's, there's not enough in my spiritual bank account to, that could earn me anything, that can buy me anything. It's this acknowledgement that I'm not saved by anything that I do, in, but if I, if I were saved on account of something that I did, if it was about something that I would do, then I would fall incredibly short because I don't have enough. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means, it means you come to terms with the fact, if I'm paying, there's not enough. But because Jesus died for me, he's paying. It's this acknowledgement that Jesus is paying, if that makes sense. If that, so Christians, like people who are actually poor in spirit, are people who understand that you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and that is it. That is why you are saved. If you have that, you should live your life as you go day to day, you should live it out of reverence for Jesus. You should live it with respect and honor, fully aware of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in your life and in our world. And then out of that, you also acknowledge, hey, I've been given a mission. Like there's like a lot of people out there who really need to see the same grace that I've experienced. This is a mission. And, and God's given me the mission of showing that same love to other people. He's given me an example of it, and he's given me a mission to live it. That is a healthy fear or reverence of God. But if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, which I know a lot of times we say we don't do, but a lot of us really in our hearts, this is the way that we live. We try to earn our way to heaven. And if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you are always going to be terrified of God. Let me show you. If you do not acknowledge your brokenness before God, 
and you for some reason believe that you have done something in your own life and in your own goodness and of your own merits that you think might get you saved, it might get you to heaven, then yes, it's going to be obvious that you're going to have a fear like that because you're going to always be asking yourself this question, am I doing enough? Okay? Am I doing enough? But if you understand the gospel, if you've grasped it, if you're a Christian, if you're a person who understands that it is only because of what Jesus did for you, okay? Do we all clear on that? That's what it means to be saved. Jesus did it, okay? But if you believe that, you claim to be a Christian, and yet you still live your life worried that God is going to punish you, what you're actually asking yourself is this question. Is what Jesus did enough? And this question will kill the gospel in your life. You cannot live out a love that you are constantly questioning, that you are constantly doubting. So John, he spends the the majority of this epistle helping us understand that God is love. He tells us that Jesus is our advocate. He tells us that God is light. He tells us that God is our father. He's just painting this beautiful picture of all of the reasons why we should have confidence that God is not looking to destroy us. God loves us. Having the fear of God in you does not mean that you are fearful of what God will one day do to you. It's very important that you understand that. Living your life like that is a destructive, debilitating way to live. And it, it, fear, that's what fear is. Fear debilitates your faith. I mean, fear, fear in general does this. Nothing, nothing will cause you to not be the person that you are called to be faster than fear. It could be a fear of failure, which a lot of us struggle with. I struggle with this. Like, at, I at times, like, I'll, I'll be slow to dive into something that I really believe that God told me to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll be locked, kind of hesitant to do it because I'm afraid that I'm going to fall on my face and fail if I do it. But we have to remember, our job is faith, guys. Our job is faith. And really what fear is, is it's not the opposite of faith. It's just putting your faith in the wrong thing. It's faith that something else is bigger than God and what he told you to do. Okay? But our job is to have faith in God that he's going to show up, that God's going to bring the growth, that God's going to bring the success. My job is merely to step out into whatever it is that he's called me to do, and that's your job too. Step out into what he has told you to do. But if you and I buy into the lie that our worth is found in the results that we produce, we will live anxious and fearful lives. Our job is planting, our job is watering, but God takes care of the results. Some people are afraid of getting hurt. So they don't take any risks. They don't pursue that relationship. They don't follow that passion. Fear fear is really good at reminding us of our past, of the things that we've done wrong. And if we let it, it kind of keeps us down. It keeps upon us this weight that we can't even get off of ourselves. Out of, maybe out of fear that we might repeat the past or that something that almost happened may happen. Just, just for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I told you a few minutes ago, about two months ago, I was in a car accident. I was, I was in a car accident. In, with, I was driving our van. I was with all four of my kids in the van. And I was taking them to school. And luckily, Dawn wasn't in the van because the van got hit. It got T-boned right where she would have been sitting. And it was really kind of where Millie was sitting too. And it's 
But thank God all of our kids and me, we all walked out completely okay. Like I think Millie had one scratch. Nobody else even had a scratch on them. God protected our family. It was, it was, it was awesome, right? But the very next day, I had to go to Grand Rapids uh, for a conference, and I went with Pastor Austin. And Pastor Austin is a really good driver. He's not a bad driver. But yet the entire time he's driving, I'm totally on edge. Like we get, we kind of, traffic starts to slow down, and I'm like, slow down, slow, you gotta slow, like, and and he's just like, you're like the worst, like, backseat driver from the passenger side I've ever seen in my life. I was really, really tense. Like, I'd see brake lights, and I'd like brace to get hit. Like, I would be afraid that, but he's just driving normal, and I would th- thought we were going to crash. See, something routine, like riding in the passenger seat of a car, was causing me anxiety because what was happening was fear was reminding me of what had happened just the day before. And it was convincing me, I was somehow convinced it was going to happen again. You know, e- even now, this is horrible, but even now when, when I pull up to that corner where I got hit, which is every single day because it was on the street that I live on. Every time I pull up to that street, if I'm doing anything but taking a right turn, I start to get anxious. I kind of get this feeling, this fear in my gut, like, can I go? Should I? Sometimes I even just turn right and then right again and right again just to avoid trying to go straight or going left because I got hit because I was trying to skip traffic because there was like tons of traffic and then they created a path um, and, and I was trying to get to the highway, so I tried to go straight, and I didn't see a car that was coming, and, and it, was, it was speeding, but I still pulled out in front of them, and they smashed into me. And so I have this, this fear in me that it's just going to happen again. But you've got to hear me on this. We've got to diagnose this for what it is, or it's never going to get better. How does this happen? I had an experience that taught me that I should be afraid. Something taught me that. Something said, you should be afraid. I was never afraid of that corner before. But now I am. You know, when babies are first born, they only have, they're only innately born with two fears. Everybody, they say, the studies say that all babies naturally have two fears. They have fears of really loud noises, and they have this fear of falling. So babies, when they're born, they have those two fears. Um, that's it. They're not afraid of the dark. They're not afraid of spiders. They're not afraid of monsters being in their closets. They're not afraid of any of that stuff. They aren't afraid of getting into a car accident or being in some sort of attack um, because they're in like a large group of people. They don't think about those things. They're not afraid of those things. The only natural fears innate in babies are falling and loud noises. Okay? Now those are both fears that can be overcome. How many of you know probably most of you are not too afraid of falling or of loud noises at this point in your life. They can be overcome. But what happens in 100% of people is life experiences typically cause us or always cause us to have more fears, not less fears. You might overcome those two fears, but you're going to learn to be fearful of other things. Every other thing that people come in contact with and begin to fear, they had to learn to fear. They had to see something that caused them to believe there's a reason for me to be afraid of this thing. There's a reason for me to not step into that thing because what if this happens or what if this happens, right? They had an experience that they're afraid to relive or they are afraid could happen. So they don't try things. And I want to show you something that I, I hope helps you because when John writes this, he writes it very specifically about the about judgment, because that's what a lot of people are afraid of. A lot of people, because if you believe that God's real and you know that he's a just God, then you're afraid. God, are you going to punish me? And this is what John says. He says, fear has to do with punishment. Another translation says torment, okay? And this should help you really understand even why we're fearful of anything, right? Fear has to do with torment. 
It has to do with the things that haunt you, the things that stick with you. It's the things that weigh on you and remind you of your past. They remind you of what happened on that street corner when you were trying to go straight to avoid traffic and instead you got T-boned and ended up totaling your car, your van. Fear is a tool of the devil that has the potential to get you to quit before you even start. Fear is also, because it's so debilitating, it's the very, it's the very uh, reason that a lot of us don't take the Bible seriously. Like, for instance, when Isaiah says, take the homeless poor into your house, right? Why don't we actually do that? Because we think, well, it's our house. It's our home. Like, what if they, um, what will they do to our house? And what if they hurt somebody in our house? Or what if they take something from our house? Or, or what if when they leave, the house smells bad because they were in our house? Like, these are... F- <laughs> These are fears that people have, and they cause them to not do things that they're supposed to do. Fear robs us of the love that we are created to live out. In the story of the Good Samaritan, it is fear that makes the priest and the Levite cross to the other side of the road when there was a man badly beaten up, bloody, and left for dead on the other side because blood and death equals unclean, and priest and Levite equals clean, holy job. And if when trying to help that man, they happened to come in contact with that man's blood, what that would have meant was that automatically, according to the Levitical law, they would now be unclean. So they don't want to help because they don't want to risk that. We could lose our jobs because you can't be unclean and still be a holy priest. How can someone who's unclean be a priest? See, that's what happens. Fear debilitates. The fear, in that case, it could be the fear of losing your job. Or it could be the, a fear that's driven by self-preservation. Like, okay, well, he's beaten up on the side of the road, but what if there are robbers that beat him up? What if they're hiding behind the trees just waiting to beat up the next person? Fear debilitates. It causes us to be, to, it causes us to not be who we are destined to be and who we are called to be. And this issue that John specifically is addressing, the fear of judgment. Man, I was just thinking about that, man. How debilitating is it to be a Christian who wakes up every day and wonders if you're still a Christian? Who wakes up every day wondering, man, is, am I okay? Is what Jesus did enough for me today? See, th- there is a healthy fear, a reverence that says, I need Jesus. Without him, I'm nothing. But there's an unhealthy very terrified fear that says, God's out to get me. And every time that we make a mistake, we have to start the whole thing over again. And that's fear that is debilitating. It keeps us inside our houses when we should go outside because we're afraid of what could happen when we're out. Fear has to do with punishment. It has to do with torment. But I want to show you this, and I hope that this, un- that this uh, helps you understand this. And by the end of today, I really, I don't want you to be fearful of judgment. And so I want to show you some things that I think will really help you to get your mind around so you don't have to worry about those things, okay? The word, uh, for, the word for punishment or for the word for torment is the Greek word colossus. Now, colossus is a very interesting word. It's only used two different times in the entire New Testament. It's used in Matthew 25, which is when Jesus talks about how he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, right? So that's obviously judgment territory. Obviously, Colossus has language of judgment to it, because that's a very end timesy uh, uh, thing that Jesus talks about. And so the idea behind what John is saying here is this. The, the thought is that we're fearful because we are afraid of the outcome. We're afraid of what could happen in the end. And John doesn't want that for us. He says, I don't want you to be afraid of the outcome. 
I want you to have confidence that I'm not selling you a used car that's not going to start. God will do what he promised that he will do. So if you study this word colossus, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating word. It comes from the word colazo. And and what colazo means is it literally means to prune. As in you're pruning a fruit tree. Now, just follow me here because this will help you understand this. When somebody would have heard the word Colossus in the ancient world, kind of depending on what time in history they would have heard it, the first thing that they likely would have thought of would have been some sort of a farmer pruning a tree. Taking off the bad fruit in order to make room for the good fruit to grow. And then eventually, the word began to be used as an image for judgment because the concept was this. If you're pruning something, you have to do what? You cut off the bad. So the concept became cutting off. We're cutting off. So then they would see this and they see this word and they think, well, that's cutting off. I don't want to be cut off because that's, that's kind of the process of getting rid of fruit. So that's how the language then became. It was like, okay, fear has to do with being cut off. So by the time that John would have written it, that would have been the thing that they would have heard. But think about this phrase. Fear has to do with colossus. Fear has to do with being cut off, right? But then think about the original thought of pruning, You prune so that you can get rid of the bad so that the good can come forth. Okay? Think about this. Pruning is for the sake of the whole. It's for the sake of the entire tree. If you have an apple tree and it's early in the season and you get these little apples that come forward, what do you do? You prune off the bad ones, the the small ones now, so that larger, more healthy ones can grow later. And suddenly you have a whole tree that bears much healthier, better fruit. Okay? Now, turn your Bibles back with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. These are Jesus' words. These are red letters, and this is what it says. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. But watch this. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Okay? Now this next part is massively important. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you do not abide in Jesus, there is literally no fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does abide in me, and, he's, uh, and if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is saying the exact same thing. If the branch isn't bearing fruit, you cut it off. But you have to notice this line that comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. And and I'm going to say this to you, to anybody in here who you've already accepted Jesus into your hearts. You are already a Christian. You've already repented of your sins. But yet you are tormented by your past and the possibility of what can happen to you in the future. Look at verse 3 of what Jesus says. Already, right now, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. All you need to do is abide. Abide in me. So because of Jesus, you are clean. 
All you have to do is abide. Apart from Jesus, what does it say? You're not even capable of bearing fruit. You do not have what it takes to bear fruit. That, my friends, is the gospel. You cannot do it without him, but through him, all things are possible. Guys, if you're going to be judged based on your own life and based on your own merits and based on your own goodness and all the things that you do, you are going to be cut off. You're going to be. It will never be enough fruit. But you aren't going to be judged that way because Jesus gave his life for you. And in him and only in him will you ever bear any fruit in our world today. But I'm going to share this with you and you might think that I'm spinning this on you, but follow me. You are going to be tormented in this way, even in this moment now. If in your life you are hiding things that are supposed to be pruned to make room for something fruitful to come. Let me help you with something. If you want the fear of punishment to go away in your own life, then repent. And that might seem like it came out of nowhere. You say, well, we've been talking about love and love and love and love and love and... Yep. But this is hugely important because, guys, if you're a Christian, you do not need to worry about the day of judgment, but you do need to put some thought into the way you live your life because you are on a mission and we are here for a mission. And everything, and even in this loaded passage, is about ultimately us becoming like Jesus so that we can show other people what it means to be loved by Jesus. And there are things in our lives that sometimes we need to repent of. The gospel is not an excuse for us to sin. The gospel is that our sins were so horrible that Jesus had to die for them. But God is the ultimate vine dresser, and he is going to prune you. The Bible says you're getting pruned. He is going to cut off all of the things that are blocking the good fruit from coming. And you can either now in your life repent of those things, and you can bring those things to light now, or you can have God prune those things in your life later. You can bury those things. You can live your life in fear of punishment, totally debilitated, not helping anybody. And God's just going to prune you later. You know, the Bible talks about uh, in the end, like, you know, you get to heaven, which again, if Jesus is in your life, you don't need to worry about that. But here's what the Bible does say. It says that even in heaven, our secrets, the things that we held in us, those things are going to get broadcast. There's no hiding things. Jesus says it like this in Luke 8, 17. He says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. So you can either bring it to light today or God will bring it to light later. And if you bring it to light later, you're going to waste today and tomorrow and the next day because you're holding on to something that's holding you back. But at some point, there has to be a pruning. At some point, it has to come. At some point, the garbage has to come off of you. And at some point, everything has to come to light. <clears throat> so prune now. <clears throat> Get rid of the stuff that's blocking you from your potential today. Think about it, guys. If you prune the problem areas of your life now, how much room for growth does that leave? It leaves you with this like, open canvas of hope to help people. In Luke 12, you get another kind of similar story that I'm just going to paraphrase for you. It's very interesting. Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus is warning the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, okay? Uh, and he, he says the Pharisees are hypocrites, which hypocrites literally means stage actor. That's the definition of a hypocrite. What it means is they live their lives as if they're putting on a show, 
but yet the religion that they project is not actually an honest reflection of who they are in real life. And that's what Jesus, um, and, and, and that, that's what a hypocrite is, and then this is what Jesus says about them and about people who live like that. He says that nothing that we cover up is going to stay covered up. It'll all be revealed. He said even the things that you whisper today are going to get shouted from the rooftops later. It's all coming out. And then he actually goes into a passage about fear and about fear of judgment. And he says the only people who actually need to be afraid of judgment are the people who live like this. Because the way of Jesus is not a way of secrecy. It's a way of healing. I I know you've heard me say this quote before. I don't even know who said it. I should have looked it up. But it's, it's a, it says, you're only as sick as your secrets. These are the things that will torment you. John says this in 1 John 1, 8. Again, we, I know we did this a few weeks ago. He says, um, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. So it's, it's talking about between you and God. You confess to God, God forgives you. Okay? But then James 5 Um, I believe it's 516, it says this, but we confess to one another, we confess to another person for healing. For healing. So we're not carrying around this disease, if you would, of guilt, this, this shame, this denial. We're not pretending like we're okay when deep, 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 deep down we know we're not okay. There is a middle ground, guys, that you can live in where you're not pretending like you don't sin at all And you also aren't living as if God wants to smite you because you sinned. And that middle ground, in in that place is confession, in that place is repentance, in that place will be reconciliation. And it's there that we prune off the bad so that we can make room for the good, so that we can live the most productive lives possible. Now, shining the light of Jesus and the love of Jesus in our world now. Guys, John really wants Christians to know you don't need to fear we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1. Please, if anybody, little children, do not sin, but if anyone does sin, and when you do sin, you have an advocate. You have somebody who will, uh, who will plead your cause, somebody who will stand next to you in that moment to make sure that it's okay. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a pruning. It doesn't mean that we won't have, sometimes have some awkward moments with each other when we confess these things and say, hey, I did this wrong. But it will lead to accountability. It will lead to a healthy community. It doesn't mean we're not going to face discipline sometimes. But guys, discipline and torment are two very different things. They're two very, very different things. I, um, I try and reread Proverbs every single month. I'm not... I don't do it as consistently as I'd like, but I, I try to do it every single month. I know a lot of people do that because Proverbs, there are 31 Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, and, uh, and there's normally 30 to 31 days in a month, except for February, there's less. So what you do is, so you read on, you know, on January 1st, you read Proverbs 1. On March 14th, you read Proverbs 14. You, what ends up happening is you read the same passage 12 times in a year. But, you'll, but if you try this, which I highly recommend you do, you'll, it's fascinating because you'll always have new things stick out to you that you're like, I never even saw that before. I read that last month and the month before and the month before, but I didn't see this before. And, and I had one of those moments uh, uh, last week as I was reading Proverbs 19. 
I read Proverbs 19, and and it's nothing too deep. I just read it for what it's worth, but I realize it's worth a lot. Uh, So on on Proverbs 19, um, I read this verse, and it never stuck out to me before, but it, it says this in verse 18. It says, discipline your son, for there is hope. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your eyes, I'm sorry, do not set your heart on putting him to death. And you know, this really stuck out to me as I, as I read it, and I read it like over and over and over and kept reading it and reading it, and I underlined it and I circled it and I highlighted it and did that whole thing. And I realized that we discipline because there's hope, because there's more. And, and I realized that a world without discipline actually would be a world without hope. Because it would be a world that thinks that it doesn't need discipline. And if you have a world that thinks that it doesn't need discipline, then you have a world that thinks it doesn't need Jesus. Like, well, what do I need that for? But the writer of Proverbs tells us that even though your son may fall, because there is hope for him, we discipline him. We set him straight. We put him back on a better trajectory. We prune now so that we can make room for who he's supposed to be, who he's destined to be, who he's called to be. But something in us has gotten this idea that God just wants to punish us. He wants to torment us. He wants to make us pay. Because Jesus already paid. Jesus already paid. And yes, sometimes we're disciplined because God loves us. Because there is hope for us. Because God, who is our Father, who John says, uh, we are God's children now. We don't have to wait. We are his children right now. We are God's children now, and God, just like this proverb says, God does not set his heart upon putting us to death. He did not create us to destroy us. He has a plan for us. He wants to use us to change the world. But the devil knows if he can debilitate you with fear, you will never be who God created you to be. But notice this as we close. Look at the very beginning. Look at the first line of this passage again. By this is love perfected with us. The goal here, John's big goal, why, we, why it's so important that we get rid of fear in our lives so that we can be something better, we can prune now so that we can be a brighter light. The goal here, and John's whole goal in this section, is to show us how we partner with God to show God's perfect love to the world. Read it again. By this is love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us. With us. With us. It doesn't say for us, and it doesn't say in us. It says with us. Which makes this last line that says, as he is, so also we are in this world. It makes a whole lot more sense. Because what John is saying is that love is perfected in this world when we partner with God by living our lives in the world in the way that Jesus lived when he lived in the world. you got to do the things in your life to prepare you for that. you got to prune now so that you can be that light, so that you can live your life and look as much like Jesus as you possibly can to the world. Guys, we are in this thing together. We are on a mission to perfect love in our world, but perfect love that casts off fear. If we can perfect our love, then we can cast out fear. 
If we can truly understand God's love for us, we can remove the roadblocks that are preventing us from being who we're supposed to be in the world and for the world and to the world. We can remove those blocks. Another way you can say it, perfect love casts out fear. Another way is say, um, love that is complete. Okay? Love that is complete casts off fear. When, and only when, we can get over the part of our religion that causes us anxiety and causes us fear, only then will you actually be able to be who you're supposed to be in Christ. Only then will you be able to show people what Christ truly is for you. If you're weighed down by your own debilitated life, you're never going to show anybody a better one. Listen, guys, if the entire gospel is only about you getting into heaven, then the moment you hear it and the moment you accept it, you may as well die. Because you won't have to worry about screwing anything up anymore. But guys, the gospel is not only about you getting into heaven. The gospel is about bringing heaven to earth now. So for the sake of love, cast off your fear. Get rid of that junk. Get it out of your system so that we can boldly take the gospel to the places that it has not been. So we can boldly share the love of Christ with the people who have not heard it yet. So we can boldly live the love of Christ to the people who aren't always that easy to love because they're still the people that we exist for. And if we're afraid of them, we'll never reach them. And if we're afraid of failure, we'll never do anything. But God has called you to do something big. And my encouragement to you is to walk faithfully in that today. God is love. We are meant to be a reflection of that love. So let's get rid of the things that debilitate us, and then let's be that reflection.